Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today, we are picking up on the aftermath of the Battle of Grahamstown as the next point in our series on the South African Empire. But first, I'd like to welcome the show's newest patrons, Lisa Columbia, who joins the aristocratic ranks of the Hohor Toffs, Sonia Mayer, who is now a lovable chimney sweep, along with Anastasia Dambu. Thank you all for the support. It is hugely appreciated. I'm also pleased to say I've nearly finished work on a Dickens script for a patron's special, which I'm hoping should be out in the next couple of weeks. I've had a lovely review from Ross J.E., USA Five Star, quote, balanced, thoughtful, entertaining. I wasn't overly enthusiastic about the Victorian era. This podcast has converted me. Chris brings you deep into the mind of the Victorian whilst contextualising the philosophy of the era from our viewpoint. I always look forward to the next episode. End quote. Thank you, Ross. And yes, I do admit that the Victorians are sometimes a bit of a niche interest, but I think we can all see just how incredible the era was and how vital it is to learn about it. Also, I thought I'd quickly clarify about the Facebook social media. I do like Facebook, but it made things a bit fiddly setting up. Eventually, I set up the Age of Victoria page, which I can use as a way to post in the Age of Victoria group as the Age of Victoria. I use the page for episode releases and important announcements. The group is for fun discussions, trivia, the Friday facts, and any listener contributions. Feel free to post in the group anything Victorian, UK history related, and don't forget to tell your friends. If any of you have written a book, please do feel free to post about it in the group as well, because authors work hard and never seem to get a break. I've also had an email from listener Hugh, who lives in the Grahamstown area. Hasn't the internet made it a small world? Hugh spotted a few things last time that I need to correct, especially around my pronunciation. First up, for reasons unknown, my tongue slipped, and I seemed to refer to 1652 when the Dutch first settled as the 16th, not the 17th century. Sorry about that. He also wanted me and everyone listening to know the small island is called Robin's Island, not Robin's Island. Robin is actually Dutch for seal. So I got my animals wrong and was calling it after a bird, not a seal. Then there's this really fascinating point about the Zahossa. Quote, I noticed you attempted to pronounce the X as you might Xerxes, almost a Z-H. There is an example on YouTube of how you pronounce Zahossa. You see, Zahossa is the language. The click, I doubt if you will be able to succeed, but a way to think of it is Corsa. The S nearly as heavy as the Z. Out of interest, Isi Corsa was turned into a written language by a German missionary in the then Ponderland, with the consequence that the phonetics of the written Zahossa are those of German, with additions to accommodate clicks. 
and not English. Perhaps that is why the pronunciation of Zahosa using English phonetics doesn't work. I try my best with pronunciations, but I'm dreadful at languages at the best of times, so it is not intentional. Instead, here is the lovely Kanye Matholi on YouTube saying it properly. I will do my best to copy her from here on out. Hello everybody and welcome to my channel. My name is Kanye and today I'm shooting a video teaching you Isikosa in the most common phrases that you will need when visiting South Africa. So before we get started, there are a few things that you need to know about Isikosa and the culture. The Isikosa language is mostly spoken in the Eastern Cape, which is considered the home of the Abakosa people. And it's also spoken in the Western Cape, which is where Cape Town is, and also in Gauteng in Johannesburg. So those are the areas where Isikosa is spoken. I also reflected on the last episode and realized I should have emphasized that these wars in South Africa shouldn't be seen as separate completely discrete events. They were part of a long process that continues to shape the culture of South Africa even today. Nor was it all a one-way process, just as the British adapted to South Africa, refined their military to deal with the new situation, so too did the native peoples. Wars change cultures. But a big problem we have is that people looking back on events view them through their own cultural lenses. The Osa were frequently portrayed as savages by the Victorians. Some criticised the practice of taking heads by the Osa, yet massively exaggerated the practice, whilst at the same time overlooking head-taking by Victorians. This was often based on either trophy-hunting by officers or as objects for scientific study, or, later on, fueled by outright racism and the crack science of phrenology. Well, at least according to historian Denver Webb in his article War, Racism and the Taking of Heads. If you reach the point in an argument of debating who took the most heads for the best reason, I'd suggest you've gone a little too far down the rabbit hole. War is horrific and people in wars tend to do horrific things. We gloss over these realities with terms like sharp action, sudden attack, significant losses causing retreat, collateral damage, because those are easier for us than the reality of bullets ripping open bodies or swords cleaving flesh to the bones of retreating civilians. In the period around the 1800s to 1830s in South Africa is especially contentious partly because it is not well understood and partly because it saw a huge European migration to the area. A lot of European perceptions would have been shaped by the limited news they got from the area, but also later romantic fiction, like the book Everard Tunstall, A Tale of the Kaffir Wars, Volume 1, 1851, by T. Forrester. He emphasises what he considers to be the savagery of the Corsa, quote, military men despise and detest them. They find themselves engaged in protracted wars, which are very harassing, with no striking results. The enemy will not come out of the bush to be shot at. 
and is very provoking that such are their tactics. The great majority of colonists fear and hate them, and not without good reason. Exterminate the savages, exclaim these parties. At least decimate them, hang their chiefs, and drive the survivors out of their country. Let them find a settlement elsewhere. They deserve nothing better, and they will never give us peace without it. End quote. We finished last time with the Battle of Grahamstown, and this is the start of where things get a lot more controversial, especially around Colonel John Graham, whom we met last episode as the energetic and talented military officer. To more fully understand him and what he did, we need to look at a really crucial conflict between the mindset of the sedentary farming-based peoples of Europe against the pastoral indigenous cultures. Then we need to look at the personalities too. For the local tribes, land was what you grazed cattle on, built villages, hunted on, and subsistence farmed in the main. Territories were often fluid as local tribal big men attempted to force their way up the local tribal power structures, whilst great chiefs or kings ruled over loosely defined areas and attempted to extend their influence. They most certainly had a concept of ownership and rights to a territory, but it was more flexible and less legalistic than the incoming Western colonists' views. Huge amounts of cultural focus for the local populations revolved around cattle. These were crucial as sources of food, materials and wealth. Many local people measured their worth in terms of heads of cattle and were accorded status in line with this, sometimes with marriage rights being affected. Many Kosa appeared to have viewed the colonists as simple competitors for watering spots for cattle. This was not uncommon in various parts of Africa, and responses to overuse of common resources like this varied. Some historians think that Corsa expected the small number of colonists to intermarry with the various tribes, cattle would be shared, and some migrations would be needed, whilst resistant colonists would be dealt with by raiding would have been very much a process of slow assimilation. For the British and Dutch, land was there to be captured, developed and made economically productive and only transferred through lawful contractual sale or by way of treaty, with access controlled by the landowner according to the law. Cattle were a resource to use on the land as appropriate depending on individual inclination or the vagaries of the free market. There was no acceptance of an idea that land could belong exclusively to an indigenous group. And the concept of it was close to being considered oxymoronic by the early 19th century British. Certainly, some people were recognised as holding land by right of tradition. But that wasn't an inalienable entitlement to the land in perpetuity. The European attitude towards property ownership that I've talked about before meant the Europeans felt there was plenty of spare land to be shared by farmers. So in their view, the problem was the indigenous people were simply wasting it by tramping huge herds of cattle everywhere, or just generally not acting like European farmers. There seemed to be vast stretches of empty land. And actually in some places in South Africa, 
That was sort of true if you happened to have modern technology, farming techniques and diplomacy. In fact, in most parts of the 19th century world, there were just far fewer people living less densely than we are used to today, but the less sophisticated agriculture of the time required more land to support the smaller populations and was far less efficient. Views on war were different too. The British didn't view a proper war as a ceremonial conflict where the point was to raid for cattle, prove manhood within a tribe or to seize captives. Individual gung-ho officers might want the ego boost and local skirmishing had some similar cultural overlaps. But when the British went to war, it was with the aim of engaging in decisive battle, breaking the enemy's will to resist and winning. Cattle raiding was not a rite of passage. It was viewed as a criminal nuisance at best. Nor were the British interested in taking captives or slaves in South Africa. They simply wanted surrender on their terms. Plus, the hierarchy-obsessed British just couldn't seem to grasp the looser political structures of the Ikosa tribes. The British authorities wanted one chief who was in charge of everything to sit down and negotiate a treaty with them. One that established the limits of the settlement and would stop the Ikosa and the Boers constantly raiding each other, which risked dragging the British in. Corsa chiefs often baffled. They ran tribes by loose consensus and often very little control over what the men of fighting age did. They could hardly tell the young men of a different tribe not to raid. After all, stealing cattle, capturing slaves and acquiring wives was how they established themselves. One chief named Gaika reluctantly accepted nominal rulership over the various tribes, and he was soon supported by Makanda, the prophet, in the run-up to the Battle of Grahamstown. If you are really interested in the psychology of Western warfare, then I'd really suggest you read John Keegan's A History of Warfare or Victor Davis Hanson's Why the West Won. Both place warfare as an outcome of culture as well as a means of politics or a technological event. What was happening in South Africa was a collision of multiple military cultures which were used for political goals. Most shocking for the indigenous tribes was that they were using essentially Iron Age technology against the industrial technology of the British and those British were willing to destroy cattle and kill women and children to ensure that resistance was crushed. This was a rare level of brutality and ruthlessness compared to most conflicts in the South African area we are aware of, although some Zulu activity further north shows interesting parallels. Colonel John Graham is a very controversial figure. When we met him last time, we saw the side of him that was clever, highly talented and a fine soldier. Now, we need to look at the more difficult things he did especially since his comments around instilling a proper degree of fear in the native tribes were clearly imperialist and aggressive. His reputation, the place of Grahamstown and the Boers 
bitterly contested in modern South African history. To quote historian Dr. Rodney Warwick, quote, The past bears down heavily upon the present. Wakanda's defeat, his Robin Island incarceration and death by drowning, and his 2019 resurrection juxtaposed against Mandela's more than a century and a half of imprisonment and liberation with his triumph of magnanimity, which draws the blessings of even the most conservative whites. For the Corsa, the renaming of Grahamstown might be a balm to the humiliations of historic black military defeat and the loss of communal land. Was it just the contrived ANC political triumphalism of a historically failed mystic? Or is it a bitter sop to the reality of the all-powerful English language and the foundations of Grahamstown's university and elite schools, its historic churches and much more, rooted in the culture of the British settlers and their descendants? Not to mention the roadside name boards identifying ownership of the numerous prosperous farms in the region once known as the Albany, formerly the Zerveld. For many whites, no doubt the eastern frontier history prompts a fearful and angry resonance of farm attacks and urban crime. For some, it is even perhaps coupled to the loss of a familiar place name associated with school or university nostalgia, the disappearance of an identity point within a heritage seldom reflected upon by most of them, despite its ubiquitous and rather obvious resilience or even sustained cultural triumph. This view appears to remain all vivid and still deeply felt in black political groupings and with demographics overwhelmingly on their side. Is it this which imposed the name change? But in all honesty, does the name of Makanda for Grahamstown make any historic sense? End quote. Equally, other historians and commentators have criticised Dr Warwick as simply perpetuating the inherent racism of Western universities that fail to teach outside a narrow, white, historical corpus and airbrush colonial brutalities. This can mean that outsiders seeking a bare account of early colonial South Africa will struggle with history as a political statement. As we saw in the Australian episodes, post-colonial views of history can be extremely complex since they typically touch on national and personal identities. The struggle for identities in modern South Africa is just as complex as in Australia. The frontier wars in the Cape and South Africa have a lot of names, and one of them is the wars of dispossession. From some points of view, that's exactly what they were. The term frontier implies that there was an empty space for the settlers, and then outside it, with the indigenous peoples, but as we have seen, the Cape area was inhabited, and the European settlers and soldiers were displacing, often violently, the indigenous occupiers. When we shift our perspective like this, the change of name from Grahamstown to Makanda makes much more sense as a gesture of reparation to the Corsa. Although many residents have complained bitterly about the change, and how it undermines the history and status of white populations in the area, some of whom could claim to be descended from people who have now lived in the area for over 200 years. 
the Keep Grahamstown Grahamstown campaign group continue to fight the change in court, to date, unsuccessfully. On the British side, in the early days, the ideal was an orderly base to support the Navy, with the rule of law and policies of non-expansion and non-aggression towards the natives backed up by a healthy dose of fear. On the Dutch side, they felt constrained by the overly legalistic British, frustrated by British non-expansion and non-aggression policies, which probably seemed either hypocritical or just sound bites that didn't match with British military aggression on the ground. They wanted to carve out their own territories and were fiercely independent-minded. They could be quite ruthless. For instance, they massacred some Corsa settlements and the banning of the slave trade by the British was unpopular with the slave-owning Boers. The Boers staged a number of rebellions, especially in frustration over the use of native people as local police forces, though that really just meant peacekeepers, not legal peace officers. One notable rebellion in 1815 was beaten by the British using allied Khoi Khoi at the Battle of Slaughter's Neck. It was an incredibly short-lived rebellion. The British troops arrived, commanded by, of all things, an American-born loyalist from Albany, and the Boers promptly surrendered. Khoi Khoi support had been vital. The local chief remained loyal, and this vindicated the British strategy of using a mix of local and imperial forces play off dissent and crush rebellions. On the indigenous side, the local San peoples were hunter-gatherers with wide ranges, whilst the Khoi Khoi were pastoral nomads. Both groups had moved into the area, but had been under pressure from colonialisation by native groups from further north who were part of the Nguni culture. Quote, Nguni groups lived along the eastern coast of South Africa in Kuala Zulu Natal. They eventually became separate kingdoms of the Zulu, Corsa, the Swazi, Mpondo and Thembu of today. From 1818 to 1828, King Shaka ruled and established his Zulu kingdom in the northern part of KwaZulu-Natal, between the Tugela and Pongula rivers, incorporating all the other chiefdoms in that area. End quote. We will get to the story of the Zulus another time, but King Shaka's actions were impacting everyone in the South African region, pushing many native people southwards. In the aftermath of the Battle of Grahamstown, difficult decisions were being made by everyone. Colonel Graham was determined to control the area. He was quite willing to kill prisoners in the Zavold, as well as burn homes and crops. This in turn killed civilians who starved and lost everything. This really shouldn't be a surprise or a matter of debate. Victorious armies have historically laid waste to territories as they sought to bring them to submission, with the burning of crops and killing of civilians seen as part of the process. The British Empire shouldn't be seen as an exception. In our modern terms, the burning of crops and killing of civilians 
or the deliberate targeting of them, is a war crime. But for men like Caesar, wiping out Gallic farms and killing civilians was just part of the imperial process. Let's also remember that militaries are inherently violent and often rather conservative. For early 19th century British military officers, the humanitarian option was often viewed as the bleating of soft-hearted people who were thousands of miles away from the front lines. Colonel Graham's superior, General Craddock, had a long and somewhat chequered history as a colonial governor. He was Irish nobility, serving in various positions, and as a junior officer, he became very good friends with the awful Prince Regent. He purchased his way up the officer's scale, fighting against the Irish uprising in the Irish Rebellion of 1798, and was injured in action against the French invasion of Ireland. Appointed President of the Madras Confederacy, he had managed to provoke a mutiny in Velour, India in 1806, when he managed to mishandle regulations for native troops that would have included the insulting requirement to remove beards, caste marks and earrings. All of those had spiritual significance for the native troops of the Madras army, and his response was inept. He commanded the British forces in the peninsula, and later Portugal in 1808 for a year, before being replaced by the vastly more talented Sir Arthur Wellesley. He was appointed Governor of Gibraltar, but resigned, and was then given the governorship of Cape Colony in 1811. He had instructed Colonel Graham to drive the Corsa out of the Zarvold, as we covered last week, and thoroughly approved of Colonel Graham's policy of shooting nearly anything moving. Given his previous military performance and capabilities, he was pretty clearly third-rate and unable to blend military and diplomatic approaches for a more peaceful and perhaps sustainable solution. Not that he seemed particularly interested in peaceful solutions. Corsa brutality was often exaggerated by the colonial settlers, but they did commit some horrific acts during the various wars themselves. To quote historian Denver Webb in his article War, Racism and the Taking of Heads, revisiting the conflict in the Cape Colony and Western Corsa, quote, the Corsa certainly did not treat captured British soldiers, colonial irregulars or adult men leniently in wartime, but it is necessary to separate colonial mythology and demonization, which formed a strong part of the colonial discourse, and hence the colonial archive, from what most likely occurred. Bank, in his exploration of racial attitudes and colonial iconography, has highlighted the racist underpinnings of colonial art in general, and the depiction of Corsa torturing wounded soldiers in 1846. The bias is equally pronounced in historical narratives. Accounts of the Corsa torturing prisoners included a wounded British prisoner who fell into the hands of Corsa in 1846 and was lashed to a wagon wheel, burnt alive and disemboweled. The fate of Lance Corporal Turnbull, who was found with his hands cut off and with the head lying on his outstretched arms, was another example. The most oft-cited case is that of Bandmaster Hartung of the 74th Regiment, who was captured and tortured to death over several days. 
His death, together with a report of the crucifixion of Sergeant Lange, entered the British popular imagination through the writings of no less than Charles Dickens. End quote. Incoming troops to the colony in later decades were in no doubt what they should do, but we do need to be cautious in using later sources to read back into the earliest days of the Cape Colony. The Victorians' experience with the Corsa would build on the previous experiences of the colonial interactions with them, starting all the way back at the foundation of the colony. The Corsa were naturally furious at having been thrown off their land in the first place and very desperate for vengeance after Colonel Graham's scorched earth policy. They had to live seeing the ruins of their former achievements. According to one visitor, John Campbell, from the London Missionary Society, who visited a year after the Battle of Grahamstown, quote, The skeletons of many of their houses remained, and some tobacco was still growing, but all their cornfields were destroyed, not a living soul, but stillness reigns, end quote. As I always try to remind listeners, war is brutal, and nothing like the stories, films or computer games. Ultimately, the Corsa, British and Boers wanted the land and were willing to kill for it, with a lot of innocent people dying along the way. Because, as General Sherman said, quote, It is only those who have neither fired a shot, nor heard the shrieks and groans of the wounded, who cry aloud for blood, more vengeance, more desolation. War is hell. End quote. He's both right and wrong, since there were many fighters and soldiers who saw the hell and rather enjoyed it. Colonial campaigns especially allowed many a European officer to journey into the heart of darkness. As Colonel Kurtz says in Apocalypse Now, quote, You have to have men who are moral and at the same time who are able to utilise their primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgement. Without judgement, because it's judgement that defeats us. End quote. It is interesting to note that Apocalypse Now is based on the great Joseph Conrad novel, Heart of Darkness, in which a man is sent to fetch a colonial officer who has thrown off the norms of civilization and declared himself a god amongst the natives. Time and again in our Empire episodes, we will see the later elegant colonies, new cities, great railways, improved sanitation and productive farms all have somewhere in their past this journey into the heart of darkness. Colonel Graham certainly didn't go so far in his descent. By many European standards, his burning of farms or his killing of civilians would have been quite tame. Many a village in the Napoleonic Wars cursed the passing cavalry of all sides, whilst the horrors of the wars of religion on continental Europe were unbearably savage. Nor was Graham having some kind of mental breakdown, or going rogue, driven mad by the horror of war. The burning of crops, destruction of farms, and forced relocation of the Corsa was official British policy, since it was agreed by the governor, General Craddock. Plus, in the background, as always, hovered what we would call today the military-industrial complex. Wars always bring profits, and many suppliers of the colony would profit 
handsomely off the various wars. In 1814, Governor Craddock was replaced by Governor the Lord Charles Henry Somerset. He would remain governor until 1826, although he did spend a couple of years in England for health reasons and to remarry. He was a thorough aristocrat in worldview, with a strong sense of the proper social hierarchy and the conviction that the British were the premier civilization in the world. He did create the first public library in South Africa, and his personal life was controversial. He had a personal physician named James Barry. You might have heard the name before. Barry is sometimes cited, especially in internet articles, as the first woman doctor, a woman who pretended to be a man because she wanted to be a doctor. We know Barry was Somerset's personal physician. We know Barry, always dressed as a dandy in the colony, wearing three-inch heels to offset a very short height. There were rumours Barry padded clothes to film them correctly, though frankly that's not unknown amongst military officers of the period. Barry certainly wore elaborate uniforms, a large plumed hat, and carried a poodle. In later Victorian society, this would have been unacceptable, even in the colonies, but in the tail end of the Georgian monarchs, men's dress was more flamboyant. Barry was also chief medical inspector for the Cape Colony and the army. Barry fought at least one duel, and then people were shocked when some rumour mongers left signs saying that Somerset and Barry were having a homosexual affair. When Barry later died, a servant who saw the body alleged that Barry was a woman who had clearly born a child. Barry was often disliked, despite his incredible medical talent. He resented the teasing over his appearance, and killed at least one person who teased him by shooting him through the lungs in a duel. Florence Nightingale loathed Barry, saying, quote, I never had such a blackguard rating in all my life. I, who have had more than any woman, than from this Barry sitting on his horse, whilst I was crossing the hospital square with only my cap on in the sun. He kept me standing in the midst of quite a crowd of soldiers, commissariat, servants, camp followers, etc., every one of whom behaved like a gentleman during the scolding I received, whilst Barry behaved like a brute. After he was dead, I was told that Barry was a woman. I should say that Barry was the most hardened creature I ever met, end quote. I must emphasise that this allegation was never fully substantiated after Barry's immediate death. It is often treated as evidence that he faced sexism in his career, but looked at correctly, the sexism was against women wanting to be doctors. Once Barry became a doctor, he was able to have an exceptional career. The treatment he suffered was in his failure to present according to male physical standards of the time. His tormentors didn't see him as a woman, but rather as an inadequate man, which is still loaded with a lot of sexism, and probably a fair chunk of homophobia and toxic masculinity were mixed in. It's just when we need to remember the claim he was female didn't circulate till he died in 1865. As for the official view when he died, George Graham of the General Registry Office wrote to Dr. McKinnon 
who was Barry's doctor, and who issued the death certificate. Dr. McKinnon replied, quote, Sir, I have been intimately acquainted with the doctor for a good many years, both in London and the West Indies, and I never had any suspicion that Dr. Barry was a woman. I attended him during his last illness, previously for bronchitis and the affection for diarrhoea. On one occasion after Dr. Barry's death, at the office of Sir Charles McGregor, there was a woman who performed the last offices for Dr. Barry, who was waiting to speak to me. She wished to obtain some prerequisites of his employment, which the lady who kept the lodging house in which Dr. Barry died had refused to give her. Amongst other things, she said that Dr. Barry was a female and that I was a pretty doctor not to know this and she would not like to be attended by me. I informed her that it was none of my business whether Dr. Barry was a male or a female and I thought he might be neither, viz. an imperfectly developed man. She then said that she had examined the body and was a perfect female and further that there were marks of him having a child when very young. I then inquired, how have you formed that conclusion? The woman, pointing to the lower part of her stomach, said, From marks here, I am a married woman and the mother of nine children, and I ought to know. The woman seems to think that she had become acquainted with a great secret and wished to be paid for keeping it. I informed her that all Dr. Barry's relatives were dead and that it was no secret of mine and that my own impression was that Dr. Barry was a hermaphrodite. But whether Dr. Barry was male, female or hermaphrodite, I do not know, nor had I any purpose in making the discovery, as I could positively swear to the identity of the body as being that of a person whom I had been acquainted with as Inspector General of Hospitals for a period of years. End quote. I love that a Victorian doctor could get away with saying it was none of their business if they knew whether their patient was male or female. But you get the feeling that Dr. McKinnon rather liked Barry and didn't care to go through the allegations with a mere servant, one who seemed to be seeking money. The army duly sealed its records and it took historians from the 1950s onwards quite a lot of digging to find the facts. According to many historians, Dr. Barry was born Margaret Anne Bulkley in an impoverished family in Ireland. With the help of family members, Margaret adopted the identity of Barry and studied medicine with a view to going into the traditional family business of supporting revolutionaries in Venezuela and helping General Francisco de Miranda, the famous revolutionary. When that fell through, Barry joined the army. I'd caution you about drawing too many conclusions about Barry. Many modern feminist historians point to Barry as an example of how sexism held women back from medicine and that Barry is an example of Britain's first woman doctor who should be celebrated for breaking the social confines of her gender role. Other trans historians particularly dislike this, pointing out that in every way Barry referred to himself as him and appeared to view himself as male. So to claim him as a feminist icon is to erase trans history by refusing to accept a female-to-male transgendered person as a transgendered person. I will leave that debate for the experts. I'm going into Barry in this level of detail because it is good to remember that people were complex 
and diverse, even in 1820s settler South Africa. Whatever else the truth was, Barry certainly had a big impact on medicine in the colony. Quote, Barry's dapper appearance belied a toughness and a hard-nosed, often belligerent dedication to his job. He was also known to carry a rapier. He had a habit of infuriating people in power in his quest to improve sanitation and medical care in the communities he served. As the medical inspector in Cape Town, South Africa, he cracked down on quack medicine hawkers, worked to improve access to clean water for rich and poor alike, and drew up strict rules for the humane treatment of patients at a local leper colony. He also performed one of the first documented caesarean sections in which both mother and infant survived. Regardless of the bullying he suffered for his squeaky voice or effeminate appearance, Barry could still be a prodigious asshole and more than willing to kill people in duels. But at least he was constantly pushing for better medical treatment and sanitation for the nascent colony. Barry's association with Somerset might have set tongues wagging, but whatever the truth of Somerset's personal life, he had what he felt was the solution to the problem of securing the Cape Colony. After the Napoleonic Wars, the British government had drastically slashed the military and wanted to cut defence spending to the bone. It is hard to get pretty accurate figures, but actually the British army in the early Victorian period and the run-up to it was very small. It had started out at a 200,000 plus high in the Napoleonic Wars, but had crashed to approximately 114,000 by the 1820s, depending on your definitions. This had to cover the British homeland itself, including putting down working class protesters and preparing for suspected future invasions by the French. Also had to enforce military rule in Ireland and it had to garrison the Australian colonies, the West Indies, the Cape colony and support the Honourable East India Company in India and fight on the frontiers in places like Nepal or the Sikh kingdoms and Afghanistan. Any British commander had to get used to making do with whatever he had, because unless a flashpoint threatened to be catastrophic, reinforcements could be a very long time coming. So governors would often expect citizens to defend themselves. Colonel Graham and Lord Somerset viewed increased white settlement in the disputed territories as a national security issue, since it gave them more people that could be called on to support the tiny imperial forces. Somerset pushed a settlement scheme on the government, and after some political squabbling, Parliament voted £50,000 to set up a white settlement scheme. Lord Somerset was aware of the dangers of frontier life, but played up the land and food production opportunities, whilst reassuring potential settlers that it was pretty safe. It is interesting to note that a lot of settlers were actually middle-class British who were worried about the growing gulf between rich and poor. They often formed small companies for the scheme. Still, an armed citizenry of free farmers was the ideal for the British government and military, 
They would ideally produce food, tame the land, and hopefully provide generations of sturdy ploughmen to stand in the ranks and some stout yeoman farmers to become solid NCOs. Or, failing that, at least it would get a lot of poor people out of the country, which was still a win-win for the government. The settlers weren't going to be told they were being planted in a buffer zone between the main colony and a region full of the pissed-off former owners of the land they were being sold. A government surveyor soon found much of the land earmarked around the military posts was far too rough and flood-prone for farming. Many settlers arrived only to find the land less productive than hoped. And due to government incompetence, grants of land were sometimes too small to actually farm efficiently with the early 19th century agriculture techniques. Instead of forming strong buffer communities around military outposts, many settlers left the farms and headed either for the neutral zone, where they soon got into conflict with native tribes, or they headed for the settlements themselves. In the neutral zone, the tribes raided the settlers for cattle, and the civilians demanded the Cape government send military support because they were free citizen taxpayers. And the whole idea of a general draft for the defence of the colony wasn't going to be happening because they were here for the food and they'd been promised a land of plenty. Oh, and since they were paying taxes, they'd like some representation too, especially the Dutch settlers. My, how history repeats itself sometimes. But the scheme still had some immense attractions for the British government. Firstly, to put it callously, it provided a meat shield of poor people between the colony and the dangerous outer regions. Secondly, whilst it was supposed to be aimed at sturdy farmers, the reality was it got a huge number of poor people who might otherwise be rioting for food and political rights. Shipping them out to die was better PR-wise than engaging in another Peterloo-style massacre. Thirdly, they might actually produce some profit and food as a bonus and be strong enough to join the army. Surprisingly, the scheme was very popular with social reformers, despite government cynicism. Some labour rights leaders and workers themselves had pointed out they were virtually indentured labour in England, were actually being turned to a form of slavery. After all, they argued, if they had no food, no jobs, and no political representation, and Peter Lou incident showed they didn't even have free speech or the right to trial before execution by the state, then in what sense were they free? The workers could also look at France and America to see that the people had the right to demand food and participation in government, and that since government only derives its authority from the consent of the governed, they were entitled to overthrow it. Given that, you can see why many members of the political elite found the idea of lands, but the poor, thousands of miles away, very attractive. If you were a starving cotton worker, thrown out of a job with your wife and children, working 18-hour days at the factory, you can see why the colonies in the Australias or South Africa were extremely appealing. 
The social view of the Cape and the settlers was extremely complicated. Some British observers thought the danger was that the settlers would find life too easy in the colony. They would grow fat and lazy. Some viewed the Boers as an example of how the white colonists would grow lazy, intellectually listless and less civilised the longer they were there. Others thought this was just the place to build a promised Christian utopia where the British could atone for slavery by building post-slave societies. Others thought this was an opportunity to regulate human behaviour, to build a more perfect kind of human who lived his day according to the strict set, unvarying times and rigid morality. We will learn more about the settlers themselves next time, their daily lives, the voyage to the Cape Colony as they travelled, and their influence on South Africa. Okay, we've had quite a long show, so we're going to call it time there. But before we go, I'd just like to play a promotion for a wonderful podcast called The History of Africa. I really recommend it, especially as obviously our topics are starting to overlap. And I will see you all soon. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts.